Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. Skepticism on the value of higher education in the U.S. is deepening among prospective students and their parents, causing alarm amongst economists and policymakers about the implications of this trend on both the future workforce and our economy. A continuing sharp decline in college enrollments is perhaps a key proof point, but there are many other symptoms and causes which we will be exploring today with John Marcus, a keen observer of the higher education scene. John is a veteran journalist who has written for many of the nation's top publications and is the higher education editor for The Heckinger Report, a national nonprofit newsroom devoted solely to covering education. Thanks so much for joining us here today, John. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. On this topic, there are many alarming statistics to choose from. But let's start with enrollment. In a story earlier this year, you cited that the percentage of high school students heading to college right after graduation has dropped from a high of 70% in 2016 to 63% in 2020. Could you paint a fuller picture for us of what's happening on enrollments? Yeah, so a lot of attention has been given to the decline in enrollment during the pandemic. We're down by about a million and a half students since uh, COVID started. But in fact, overall, the number of students in college has declined by 4 million since the early 2010s. Uh, that is unprecedented and widely overlooked uh, until COVID happened. And even now, I think we're sort of focused on the more recent past and not paying attention to this longer term trend. It's not only that the national portion of students going right from high school into college in the successive fall, it's not only that that has fallen, but in some states, the proportion has fallen even more sharply. Um, Tennessee and Indiana, it's down by 12 percentage points, for instance. There's a sort of common wisdom that this is a result of the pandemic. People were demoralized by being um, in class virtually in high school. They thought that college would be much like that, and so they chose not to go. Uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to the fact that the labor market improved and that might have sucked students right from high school into jobs. On top of which, by the way, there's been a long-term demographic decline in the number of 18-year-olds generally just because of fluctuations in the birth rate. All of those things may have contributed to the decline in enrollment, actually, except for the labor market, where, in fact, fewer high school graduates of the last few years are in the workforce than went into the workforce before covid um, not more. So that kind of contradicts that theory. But the demographic changes are not enough to explain this drop, nor is the pandemic by itself. There are much longer term issues at play here. Most significantly, as you mentioned in your introduction, this growing public skepticism about the value of a college education. The cost of going to college has finally caught up with us. And many people have chosen to you know, vote with their feet and not go. They just don't see the value of it. They don't see that it's worth the debt. Interestingly, uh, the last few months of conversation about forgiving student loan debt has had the inadvertent effect of reminding all of us every single day how much people borrow to go to college. And the other really kind of mind-blowing reality here uh, that I realized as I was working on these stories is that parents of these graduating high school students are still repaying their college loan debt. And so they are reluctant to subject their kids 
to debt of that duration too. Two generations of debt, that's very, very worrisome. And I can see why that would affect the decisions of, of students to pursue the cost of higher education. Um, so on the value of higher education, the national polls do reinforce what you're saying, which is showing that one in three adults say a degree is not worth the cost. How did we get here? So there are a number of reasons that I think have contributed to this decline in this sort of public skepticism of higher education. It's impossible to overlook the political aspect here. There have been politicians and government leaders who have been beating the drum that um, college is a place where students get indoctrinated. There are speech issues that have arisen. All of those things, I think, actually do have an impact. Interestingly, uh, this is something that I learned after we wrote about the huge decline in college going, when we began to hear from parents who very angrily were talking about as they expressed it, woke Marxist faculty indoctrinating their children. How an engineering or an accounting professor indoctrinates a student into Marxism, I'm not entirely sure. But that's a, a widespread impression, not surprisingly considering the, the sort of beating that higher education has been taking over the last few years for political reasons. More immediately and more empirically, I think there are a couple of things that colleges and universities have done that have hurt them. Uh, one is that they insist on listing a sticker price. That is a, the price that you see on the website for tuition, room and board fees, and other costs of attendance. Um, no, Almost no one pays that price. People pay on average 54% of that price in their first year in college. Uh, and yet many students, including students whose parents didn't go to college or who go to poorly resourced public high schools and don't have college counselors that can explain this to them, they don't understand that that is not the real price of college. And yet colleges have stubbornly clung to this idea of listing a sticker price and then discounting it again by 54%. Incidentally, a terrible business model for colleges. If you were a private business and discounted your price by 54% of your principal product, you'd be out of business. And that is in fact why colleges are closing. Nonetheless, this is how they've chosen to do business. Charge a high price and then make people feel good by giving them a discount or financial aid. The second thing that colleges have done in particular to, to sort of propel this skepticism is that they've been very, very bad at connecting a major to a job. And as much as faculty and some administrators like to think that people go to college to become smart, um, to become citizens of the world, that their job is to impart knowledge, you can't charge what colleges and universities charge without addressing the return on the investment. What will the students get for what they're paying? And colleges have been really, really bad at articulating this generally. That is, they don't connect some major that has a name of a discipline that somebody made up in their doctoral thesis before they became a faculty member. They don't understand how that major connects to a job. It probably does connect to a job. I'm not saying suggesting that it doesn't. It's just the colleges and universities have been very bad at, at messaging that fact to students and prospective students. So without being able to see that connection, I think parents and their kids are uh, and, and older adults who are also an important market for colleges and universities, they're not seeing it, they're not getting it, and as a result, they're not going. Well, John, you, you've alluded to the uh, woke environment in higher education, the discounting uh, practices, intuition, um, also this inability to connect the majors to a job. Overall, this all ties together to a trend whereby there's an erosion of trust in our higher education system and our institutions. So what 
can or what is higher education doing to respond to these trends? And have you seen any effective efforts being made to turn this around? Uh, not enough, but some, yes. And that's because institutions um, respond best to their own self-interest. And with a gigantic decline in enrollment, universities have been motivated more, I think, perhaps than in the past to make some changes here. So when you talk about connecting majors to jobs, some institutions have been doing a better job. One that comes to mind is is Kenyon, which has a what looks like the route map in the back of an airline magazine that connects every major to the job the real world job that a particular graduate assumed. So you can look on this diagram and see English major and follow the, the trajectory to financial investment advisor, if that's the case, which is, which is much clearer, I think, to a reader. Some other universities have done a better job, like the University of Texas, at connecting postgraduate earnings to majors. How much will you make if you major in a particular subject at a particular institution? A lot of universities claim that they provide that information, but it's fake news. It's alternative facts. Um, those numbers often have no basis in reality. They're mid-career earnings, not immediate postgraduate earnings, or they, they cherry-pick the best-looking numbers. But a few institutions have gotten serious about it, like UT, using census data and other data um, that provides a really accurate assessment of where students go and how much they make after graduating. Another thing that universities are doing increasingly this year is going to be really interesting to watch. Anyone that took economics knows that market forces would demand an adjustment in price. When the supply of, of customers declines, the price is often adjusted downward. And we have seen a number of institutions freezing tuition or even lowering tuition, in some cases substantially. They've tried this before, and there's an interesting outcome of this. When you lower your price Consumers sometimes don't think you're worth the money. And so when one institution um, unilaterally lowers its price and people look at the competitors that cost more, we, for some reason in America, instantly assume that that isn't worth it. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. The other danger of this is that if colleges do lower their price, there's the danger that they'll, again, significantly affect their revenues, especially in an inflationary uh, environment such as what we're living in right now. That's because if you think of the things that are uh, increasing in price the most right now, it's energy, labor, and food. And those are the three mainstays of a residential university, especially in the North. And those are all costing these institutions more, which makes it harder for them to lower the price. In many cases, they lower the price to the average of what students are now paying anyway, that is really good for rich kids who pay more, but not so good for poor kids who pay less now and will now have to pay the average amount. So there's a potential equity um, impact of this as well. Whether colleges are more concerned about equity right now or just enrollment is a is a broader question. There are other things being done increasingly to address the enrollment issue. One really important one is what college and university people call retention. That is the proportion of students who stay as opposed to dropping out. Right now in this country, one quarter of all the freshmen who start college quit before they come back in the sophomore year. One in four students. That is extraordinary. And another example of, of the frankly kind of failure of our higher education sector to do its job. In many cases, of course, those students leave because of situations that are beyond the institution's control, a family emergency, a financial shortage, but universities have done far too less to retain them. The retention numbers had crawled up slightly 
since the beginning of the 2010s and then flattened out again during the pandemic. But the cold reality is it costs a lot more money to replace a dropout than it does to keep them from leaving in the first place. So we visited a number of institutions that have done a lot of things to keep people from leaving. And that also sheds a light, a not particularly flattering light on the kinds of dumb things that colleges do that force people out. Uh, we went to a university in Florida, which began to address retention because it was part of their funding formula. In Florida, they have what's called performance funding, which means that universities, public universities are funded on the basis of, for example, the proportion of their students who graduate, the proportion who graduate on time, the proportion who stay. Because of their very, very low retention rates, this university was threatened with the loss of millions of dollars in state funding. They got very serious about retention. And as a result, they, they made very small changes that had a huge impact. One of the most interesting ones to me was if a student went to the registrar's office and had a financial aid problem, they would rather than say, go talk to financial aid, they would refer them to a person by name. That tiny, tiny difference in humanizing a giant bureaucracy has made a big difference in the proportion of the students who have stayed. So a number of universities are, are finally uh, addressing this. In addressing it, I mean, not to sound like a, a cynic, but in addressing it, they're exposing how poorly they've been doing business in the past and just allowing people to, to slip out of their hands just by sending them to an office anonymously where someone else was going to say to them, I don't know, go to this other office and get the sort of runaround. Um, universities could afford to do that when there was an endless supply of students. Now there's not. And now they're getting serious about actually effectively um, helping students stay. That ties well back to your prior point, which is, you know, especially the demographics changes and the shrinking K-12 population. If that population has shrunk, then the number of bodies that are coming into these colleges aren't as uh, numerous as it was before. So now each student counts a lot more. Well, that, that one-fourth of the freshman class, that's a shocking statistic. Can, can I probe a little bit, John, on this issue of costs? You know, you talked about market forces and price adjustment. The vast majority of costs on a campus is really the cost of salaries, right? Faculty, especially... Um, with the cost of living adjustments and tenure, how do colleges actually affect those cost elements? So that's true that labor is a significant proportion of the price of college. Um, and that's something colleges and universities have often said in, in response to questions about why college costs so much. Um, it is also true that there are a lot of administrators. There's been a huge increase in the number of administrators through a data analysis using federal data. We found that the number of administrators in the last 25 years has doubled while enrollment has actually declined. Um, in some cases, there are good reasons for those administrators. They work in the development office, which raises money. They work in the sustainability office, which we didn't have 25 years ago. They work in Title IX. They work in mental health. Mental health counselors are considered administrators by the coding that the feds use when they count administrators. And and I want to be very careful to say that it, that no one has ever been able to empirically connect the increase in the number of administrators that we all sense with a specific contribution to the higher cost of college. But nonetheless, colleges and universities also do a lot of things. And, you know, and people that work at colleges and universities will differ about this, I'm sure. They offer very, very nice benefits. They offer free tuition in many cases at their own institution or 
uh, or even at other institutions on a reciprocal basis for faculty and other staff. That's a really nice perk. It also, I think, sort of shields people that work at universities from understanding the pain that other people go through to put their own kids through college. They are three times more likely to offer post-retirement health care, something that almost no one in the private sector gets in this country. Um, very generous pensions, very generous um, health care, very generous matching retirement contributions, although many colleges uh, suspended or reduced those during the pandemic. They do a lot of things like that for their employees that I think reasonable people might come to agree are expensive and contribute to the cost. But it is true that labor is a very expensive part of this. Many colleges have also, um, and this is no surprise to anyone that's gone to college lately, hired adjuncts. Adjuncts are very, very hardworking people, often professionals who teach their subject. Uh, they don't get paid very much. Uh, they're not on campus very often. And how that contributes to the quality of the education students get for the escalating price is something that is the subject of a lot of debate. I think in many cases, professional adjuncts add a lot to students by being um, a connection to the career field that the student might choose to enter. But um, there are other people who feel that the fact that they're not available for office hours, for example, is a downside. So colleges, while charging more, are providing part-time adjuncts the quality of whose availability, not the quality of their teaching, but the quality of their availability is in question, or graduate assistants or teaching assistants. Interestingly, and this is also propelled by the pandemic, when everyone went remote and uh, universities really, really badly needed graduate and teaching assistants, a number of universities that had for a long time resisted unionizing efforts by their graduate assistants and teaching assistants very quickly caved in and gave them contracts just so they'd stick around and help teach courses online. That added additional expense to pay a reasonable wage to those graduate assistants and teaching assistants that also keep a lot of, of classes going. So there's a lot of things on the cost side um, that could happen and that are only sort of sluggishly happening or that might actually reduce quality, but not a, not a huge amount that is potentially going to make a big difference. And that's a problem because there need to be. Well, let's talk about one interesting development you've reported on, which is how higher ed institutions are collaborating on dual admissions in an attempt to make it easier for students to transfer from, for example, a two-year institution to a four-year program. Tell us more about that. This is a fascinating new development and one of the solutions you were asking about earlier. Um, dual admission is separate from dual enrollment. Dual enrollment means that high school kids are taking college courses before they graduate. That has um, been a boon to students who have been able to take care of a lot of their credits before they even get to college, speeding up their eventual graduation, which is all, all a good thing. Dual admission is another thing entirely. Dual admission means that you're admitted to both a two-year and a four-year institution simultaneously. Transfer is a huge problem. Um, it wastes billions of dollars in lost credits and tuition that has gone to take courses that students who then transfer have to take again because the second institution won't accept those credits. At a time when more students are transferring uh, and want to transfer, we've made transferring extremely hard. Transferring is largely controlled by faculty who often understandably by human nature, don't think the way that some other institution teaches their course is as good as the way they teach it. So they don't want to confer credit for it. Something in the neighbor of 80 something percent of community college students say that they intend 
to finish and go on to transfer to a four-year bachelor's degree renting institution. Only about 14% of them actually ever do. So dual admission means that you're admitted to the community college or to the two-year institution simultaneously with admission to a four-year institution, um, usually public, but sometimes also private four-year institutions, especially in states like Pennsylvania. We find this happening a lot because private institutions are very hard-pressed for students. They're also hard-pressed for diversity, which transfer students from community colleges, as you know, can provide. So uh, dual admission is a promising, relatively new approach. It has made a difference in some places. Uh, one area where we have some data already is Virginia, where there have been thousands of students who started at a particular community college, went on to one or another of two public universities um, and stuck and are moving on their way to a bachelor's degree. That's far more than would have done it without this. Uh, they don't have to reapply from community college to four-year bachelor's degree granting institution. They're automatically enrolled. They often have the right to use the library, other facilities, and even join extracurricular activities at the four-year university while they're enrolled at the two-year institution. Often the institutions are in geographic proximity. They're next door. They're, they're across town. So a lot of really good reasons to do this. That, that also makes community college students feel a part of the four-year institution where they might progress or feel less like imposters when they transfer from a community college to a four-year university because transfer, understandably, is a traumatic process. Um, this eases that route, and we'll see if it makes sense over time and makes a difference. Well, John, I'm taking notes because one of the areas we're working on in Futura Health is the shortage of mental health, behavioral health workers, right? Um, it's an aftermath of this pandemic, and we have such a shortage of therapists who are all trained at the master's level, which is a very, very long distance to go. And so how do we create accelerated programs where people can power through their bachelor's and master's or associates and bachelor's to head towards their master's? So I'm definitely taking notes on what you're saying. Good. There are a lot of opportunities there, and there is a lot of policy work going on in trying to increase output of people like mental health workers, nurses at all levels, and teachers. You know, that that's great. It would be better if there was that same level of activity and interest in getting everyone through college and to the level of education that they need for the jobs they want. So let's talk about the jobs that they want. Um, are there institutions or colleges you want to call out who have been particularly good at um, being able to keep up with the rapid shifts of employment market? You know, the shelf life of skills is getting shorter and shorter. So it's become much more difficult for workers to keep up. Yes. Um, so in addition to doing a better job, as in the Kenyan example that I gave earlier, at making clear to a consumer where that degree will lead, there's there's something new and amazingly underappreciated and unreported um, that I've been writing about recently. It's called course sharing. And course sharing is something that uh, so far is a solution for small, largely liberal arts colleges that don't have a national brand, that are very highly tuition dependent, and that are very worried about their enrollment. Um, HBCUs, which is historically black colleges and universities, and religiously affiliated institutions, all of which are also very small and may not have a lot of majors. So students are looking at a liberal arts college and wondering why they should be an English major or a history major or philosophy major. Um, as a product of a liberal arts college, I know, as most of us do that went through that education, that those majors actually do lead to very good jobs. And they, they impart skills that, that people really do need for sort of lifelong careers. But 
consumers don't think that. So this new idea of course sharing picks up on something that we all did during the pandemic, which was learn online. And it allows a, uh, a small institution to add courses and majors actually taught by another institution somewhere else while their students stay there. They stay at the home campus and are able to uh, remotely take a major or a program. They get the advantage of a small residential education and get to major in the field that they want. We wrote about a, a small liberal arts college in Michigan that was able to add computer science and cybersecurity and data analytics and all kinds of very hot majors that students really wanted. Uh, supply chain management, a very big, a very uh, lucrative major in Michigan. This was a small liberal arts college. You wouldn't have expected to find supply chain management. But through course sharing, they were able to pick up courses from other institutions that do teach these these courses, recruit students to their campus that wanted the advantages of a small college. Um, it's a very robust athletics program. All of the things that are great about going to a small college, plus the major students wanted. And they've picked up 100 in the last two years They've picked up 100 students who they say would not have come had they not been able to major in these in these programs. So course sharing is going to be one that's a game changer. And I expect to see it spread beyond small colleges to all kinds of colleges and universities that see it as a way of kind of joining the sharing economy and providing courses that way and streaming them. John, if you start with just course sharing, which sounds like a great practice, then could you begin to bundle in, for example, industry value certificates that are offered via different platforms or frankly even by the employers themselves could you mix and match that way eventually yes most course sharing actually uh, is dependent on middlemen who are private for-profit companies that supply the technology the registration process and all of the other very complicated because higher education as we know is massively overly complicated um and very hard to navigate. So they use these middlemen to do that. And, and and there are many of them that are cropping up to provide this. They are the darlings of venture capital firms and hedge fund managers who uh, see this as a huge potential market. Some of them are very focused on industry credentials so that you can embed an industry credential in your English major. Uh, there was actually a, a survey that was conducted by Kaplan, the test prep and education company. They did a survey, not just of employers, but of adults in general, that if you had a trace between an English major, uh, someone that had a cybersecurity credential, or third, an English major that also had a cybersecurity credential, you'd hire the third one. You'd hire the person that had both English and the credentials. So yes, to your point, a lot of these course sharing arrangements are, are embedding industry credentials that are short of associate or bachelor's degrees, but still add value to a graduate who's a prospective employee. Well, I hope our, our listeners are listening intently to these best practices. Um, you mentioned a little bit early on about the Biden administration student loan debt relief plan and made some commentaries about it. I was wondering if John Marcus were president and he were doing a debt relief plan, how would you have targeted that debt forgiveness? Oh, thank God that's not true. Um, <laughs> so uh, it is clear that we have failed many students in our higher education sector. We have particularly failed them in the private for-profit sector where there are the single largest proportion of defaults. This is empirical, it's not, it's not opinion, I'm not disparaging them. Um, they simply have recruited many students who have never finished and ended up with debt, or in some cases, institutions that are private and for-profit have closed and stranded millions of students 
we've also we the taxpayers have also been paying off their college loans uh, under this administration. But not only them, there are nonprofit and public institutions that have done just as poor a job. We talked about how one in four students drop out between freshman and sophomore year. That's a failure. That's a significant failure. Many students never graduate. This is another mind-boggling statistic that when I share with friends who aren't in higher education, they cannot believe that only 43% of people that started a four-year university um, graduate in four years. So more than half do not graduate in four years. And it's not only the people at the dinner parties that I don't get invited to anymore because I talk about this stuff. It's students themselves. There's a UCLA survey of freshmen nationwide that finds that 90% of freshmen think they're going to graduate in four years and only 43% of them do. Only about two thirds of them graduate even in six years. That is a gigantic failure. And yet nowhere in this conversation, almost nowhere in this conversation about student loan forgiveness, have we addressed the failure of the higher education sector to give students what they're paying for, for all this money. Um, and the third failure is that they're graduating students that don't make enough money with their education to justify paying for the degree. So one thing I would do is hold them accountable in some way. And there are there have been proposals over the years by politicians on both sides of the aisle, and now another one that's just been proposed to hold all higher education institutions accountable for their students who default on their loans. Um, it's never passed. Colleges and universities have a significant amount of very quietly held lobbying power and clout. And maybe that's why. I don't know. I guess that. But if I was in charge of the student loan forgiveness program, I would have maybe lowered the eligibility lower than a couple that makes $250,000 a year, which is arguably enough to repay your college loans. In the great scheme of things, in spite of a lot of the criticism of this proposal, 91% of the people that are that are eligible for this loan forgiveness make significantly less than that. But it's a bad look um, to say that a couple making a quarter of a million dollars a year, that other taxpayers should pay off their loans. But we have what we have. Well, you give us lots to think about. And so I'm going to pose you this closing question, which is, you know, what's your crystal ball when you look ahead over the next 10 years? Where do you think higher education will be in the U.S.? And Vaughn, I'm going to wish I had something really happy to tell you, but it's not going to get better. Here's why. In 2008, we had a recession and people stopped having children. 18 years from 2008 is the mid 2020s when this already horrible enrollment picture will go down even more because there'll be fewer 18 year olds even than there are right now. So there's been a long anticipated decline in the mid 2020s because of the decline in the birth rate in 2008. When there's an economic downturn, people stop having kids. So in the mid 2020s, we're going to see another giant you know, over the cliff of enrollment that's going to put more colleges out of business. Uh, especially in areas like the Northeast and the Midwest that are already having trouble with enrollment. Um, there was some hope that that would recover. But in fact, during the pandemic, the birth rate went down again by 300,000 births in the first year. We don't know yet about the second year. That means that 18 years from then, uh, rather than going back up, enrollment's going to continue going down. 300,000 fewer 18-year-olds is a big hit for colleges and universities. So on the enrollment front, we're not going to see much getting better. I'd like to think that now that it's an existential crisis, we'll see colleges and universities finally taking steps they should have many years ago to stop hiring, stop building, stop spending, start innovating, start using technology, 
uh, to work smarter and to do a lot of those kinds of things to improve retention, diversity, and all of those other things. I fear that um, in the process of doing that, of keeping themselves afloat, they will jettison some of their mission statements, particularly of continuing to accept low income and other underrepresented groups, low socioeconomic status, racial and ethnic minorities, first generation students, because those are students that require a lot of financial aid in many cases and significantly more support because they come from under-resourced urban public high schools or rural high schools. You know, that's expensive for a college. But if they do ignore that group, that is the only growing demographic that we have, particularly Hispanics. And while a few forward-looking colleges in very northern areas without a lot of Hispanic college going like Oregon are hiring Spanish-speaking admissions officers for the first time, which is very smart, not everyone is recognizing this reality. And by focusing on the short-term balance sheet, I fear that they will overlook the importance of continuing to enroll a diverse student body. The pending uh, affirmative action case in the Supreme Court might also have an impact on that. So I, I worry that things might get worse before they get better. I wish that's not how we were ending this conversation, but uh, I'm hoping that we'll see more innovation. There you go, audience members. John Marcus has forewarned us of higher education's existential crisis that is to come. Let's wrap up for today. Thank you very much, John, for joining us and sharing your vast, vast uh, knowledge base and wisdom and insights into the world of higher education. Vaughn, so nice to be with you. Likewise. I'm Vaughn Quinlivan with Futur Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.